Hear me? Oh, love it when that happens. I probably don't need too much amplification. Um, <coughs> so it's time for our question and answers. That was really great. That was kind of a question and answers all of its own. But some of you have taken the time to write down on paper um, some of your questions. Um, we'll not, probably not get time to go through all of them. Um, some of them are similar, so they're grouped together. But even if your question doesn't get asked now, you can still go and ask John before you leave. Um, I'm sure he would try his best to answer them. So John, the first question is, and I think you've already done it, I'm assuming you have, what was your joke? Was that the joke? Because Next question. It exceeded all, all my expectations, because I've been waiting since Friday night to hear this joke. and. Uh, so did it work? I mean, was it... Was it was did it, it work? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now I know why... There's a few of you are offended, am I right? Yeah. <laughs> now I understand why in the drive down here you were asking me how much it cost to call people over the border and how much it cost to make landline phone calls. And I thought, this is a strange, <laughs> strange guy we've got coming. You know, asking all these questions. Too late to change as well. <laughs> Running through your mind, who else is in town? So... Some questions, oh, there's the ones. Some specific questions on the, the text of Amos. Uh, so you might want to have your, your Bible open. There's two questions here. Right at the start, Amos chapter 1, verse 1, uh, mentions about an earthquake, though it's never been mentioned again. Can you explain? So, relatively maybe. Simple question, what's this earthquake or does it have any significance? I think the significance, and I, I may have briefly alluded to it, is just to give us uh, more of a precise historical anchor um, and archaeological excavations have, uh, have pinpointed an earthquake that occurred round about 760. So that helps us to sort of set the date of, um, of Amos quite precisely. I don't think it's necessarily relevant to the rest of the book. Um, you know, one thought might be, and this has just come to me now, so it hasn't been tested by any reflection, but two years before the earthquake, so the warning comes before the earthquake. Is that something of a picture of Amos, the warning before the earthquake? The lion is still roaring before he is silent. So that, that would be one possible non-reflected, non-thought-through, very tenuous, tentative, I'm not really sure, answer. Um, you mentioned two interpretations of Amos 3, chapter 12. Um, if Israel are God's chosen people, I don't understand why it would be interpreted as God completely destroying Israel. So your two interpretations, if you want to maybe go through them again and then state which one you think is most likely. Um. All right, so the two interpretations were, first of all, that's Amos 3.12. Thus says the Lord, just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away with the corner of a bed and the cover of a couch. Now, when, I went, when I first went through Amos, I, I, I naturally assumed, and I think most of us would, that um, the picture here is the picture of remnant, that the shepherd is able to grab a, a little bit of the lamb as the lion takes most of it away. So there's a little bit of a remnant left. 
But uh, one of the commentators that I consulted presented a second possible interpretation on the basis of alternate translations from the Hebrew and also on the basis of what was culturally understood at the time. So the second interpretation now is where the shepherd goes back to report the loss of a lamb, but he has to prove it, to prove that he hasn't sold the lamb and made some money for himself. So what he does is he, he shows something that was left of the lamb to say, look, you can see the lion's taken it, this is all that's left. And um, in, in that, in that understanding, so that, that is what happened back then. So the sort of line of interpretation is, well, that's what's being alluded to here. Amos is a sheep herder, so he's talking about what was sort of current law in the land. And the last line can be translated slightly differently. It can be translated um, in terms of the people lying on their beds. So what you've got here is the, the proof that there was no rescue is the couple of legs. So it's not, it's not I've rescued these. It's, look, I couldn't rescue the lamb. Here's a couple of legs to prove it. And this is somewhat sarcastic um, in that Israel is not rescued at all, those who are lying on their couch. So those are two possible interpretations. If I would personally still go with the first one. Um, I mentioned the second one because it seems to have quite a lot of support in terms of the Hebrew interpretation of that passage and some of the commentators. The reason that I would go with the second one, the first one in terms of the remnant, is that there is the remnant theme throughout the book. And so because there is that remnant theme, it seems to me that's more likely here. So it's not total destruction, because God says a remnant shall remain in chapter 9. Great. Um, got two questions here kind of on preaching and teaching. Uh, John, if you were preaching through the book of Amos uh, in your church, say over five Sundays, kind of five talks that you've done today, would you leave the church waiting for over a month before you kind of got to the nice hope light filled salvation would it be would you preach it kind of five weeks of judgment or would you just bring in at the start go straight to chapter nine and set it in that context how how, how would you do that in a congregational setting uh, about i'm not sure five six years ago i preached through amos in our evening service at church um, in our church services and i took 10 or 11 weeks to go through, and I, and I went through progressively. Uh, I started in chapter 1, verse 1, and I went to chapter 9, verse, what is it, 14 or 13. So we just went through what God said is what I preached. Did I, at the end of every message, say, don't worry, don't worry, please don't panic, don't commit suicide, don't jump off bridges, don't find a train, hang in there, because Jesus is going to sort it all out. The answer is no. The reason is because it's not there. So my, my philosophy about these sorts of things is if God has put, if God has laid out nine and a half chapters of judgment before he brings in the half chapter of, um, of hope and salvation, then that is the right proportion and that is the right way to do it because that's the way God did it. So I, I just preached what was there. Where there were little remnant pictures, little turn to me and you shall live, um, I spoke and you didn't return, I obviously preached about those because those little glimmers are there. But I didn't, at the end of every session, say, don't worry, chapter 9 is coming. I think we have to trust God in terms of how he has put together his word. And so if, I mean, I'm sure all of us must have, I feel a little bit like when I preached on Isaiah 63, Isaiah 63, 64, 63, Rosalind, um, last time, where it's just so, it's so unpleasant. 
<laughs> it really is so unpleasant. Oh, some of the scripture is so unpleasant. And the danger is this is so unpleasant, let me bring in some good stuff. Listen, if it's unpleasant and God didn't bring in good stuff, don't bring in good stuff. God will bring in good stuff at the right time. And for some reason he knows that you just need to go through nine and a half chapters of doom and gloom to make the second half of chapter nine absolutely, outstandingly, brilliantly glorious. Yeah? But you see, if you keep nipping over to have a look at that bright citadel um, as you're getting despondent and gloomy in the town, when you eventually come to chapter 9, it's ho-hum. We've seen that many, many times over. But if you've just been overcome by a town that's full of gloom and doom and stinky and horrible, and you turn a corner, you see this, which is so different. I'm sure you'd agree. It just sort of raises it up. And you, you, know, you want to worship. You want to lift your hands up. You want to pray. You want to praise. You want to start hallelujah. All the sorts of things you guys didn't do. Amen. <laughs> Woo! That's a bit excessive. Calm down. No, Calm down. Calm down. Do you have any tips for teaching through books like Amos to children? Would you have the same approach to a child? <laughs> Nine weeks of Sunday school, kids. Ready for some judgment? I, I, I would have to just um, bow out of the answer and say, find somebody who's really skilled at teaching children and ask their advice. Um, so I can't answer on a practical level. On a sort of more philosophical level, a theological level, God wants children to understand his word. And he wants, to, he wants them to understand Amos. He wants them to understand Hebrews. So somehow we've got to blend. We can't just sugarcoat it all. And then when they grow up, it's a little bit like, you know, Father Christmas. Any of you still here? Believe in Father Christmas before I carry on. <laughs> okay, do you mind just not listening too much now? <laughs> but, you know... Some parents bring up their kids to believe in Santa Claus until they're about seven, and they say, well, we lied. You know, it was mom and dad. Um, they don't actually say we lied, but that's essentially what they're saying. You know, you see, you try, we try and sugarcoat things for kids. So somehow we've got to get the balance between um, saying what God says, but saying it in a way that is appropriate to the, the young minds, the tender hearts of children. So on a, on, a, on a principle level, I'd say somehow find a way of doing it. On a practical level, I'd say find somebody far better qualified than I am, somebody who really knows kids but could maybe do Amos for kids. Sort of a cop-out answer. Um, thinking back to Amos 1 and 2, how do we, um, the church, the people of God, get the balance right between judging and discerning and knowing people by their fruits or lack of them? Read that again, Mark. So how, uh, as God's people, do we get the balance right between judging people and being desiring holiness, but yet not slipping into becoming judgmental, legalistic, and condemning and of, of everything and crushing people and ourselves, perhaps? So how do we get that balance or in the perspective of our own lives even? Hmm. Um, Matthew chapter 7, uh, which was read in the very first meeting, I think, was uh, the, the picture of the speck, the beam in your own eye and the speck in your brother's eye. And I think that starts 
that helps us to start answering the question is um, what is being judgmental? Being judgmental is being unwilling to see my own faults and, and, and focusing upon the faults of others and judging them and being critical of them in the light of that. But, but being judgmental is not taking the, the beam out of my eye and then not doing anything about the speck in my brother's eye. Because if you, if you read Matthew 7, you're actually responsible to take the beam out and then to help your brother with the speck. So somehow we've got to get a balance between um, recognizing sin and, and loving the person who is sinning and yet at the same time trying to help them deal with that sin for ourselves and for others. I'm not sure I'm understanding the question enough or grasping the question enough to, to give a, a better answer. Um, if you understand it, do you want to try and rework the question? No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've got it. Sorry? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this question would help flesh it out a bit more. It's maybe saying a similar thing. Um, not on the sense of judgment. Or, or discerning but in holiness and it's linked then with the theme that's been present in a lot of the questions which is to do with with uh, security uh, security of your salvation and that sort of thing how do we keep a healthy assurance of salvation alongside being responsive and receptive to the many warnings in scripture of judgment and of sin okay <laughs> that one I understand better uh, Hebrews uh, pursue holiness without which no man shall see God is that Hebrews 11 um, no it can't be Hebrews 11 Hebrews 12 maybe pursue holiness without which no man no woman can see God so holiness is something we need to pursue <laughs> I've lost my train of thought what was the question <laughs> Just if you start to start it I'll remember um, how do we <laughs> Disaster, don't scrumple it up. Sorry, sorry. It's all right. How do we keep a healthy assurance of salvation uh, whilst being responsive and receptive to the warnings of judgment throughout Scripture? Thank you. So we are to pursue holiness, all right? So holiness is to be our goal. Um, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of of the Pharisees and the scribes. And I think in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, that is not imputed righteousness. He's not saying... You need to therefore have the imputed righteousness of Christ. He's talking about practiced righteousness. So we need to, we need to aim for that practiced righteousness, which is going to be seen by other people, and they're going to say, man, that is a holy person. Uh, in terms of assurance, our assurance is never based on the holiness we exhibit. Our assurance is always based on the holiness of Christ in which we trust. And it's, it's the holiness of Christ in which we trust today. I think that's one of the lessons of the book of Hebrews with the warning passages, is that you need to trust Christ today. How can I have assurance of my salvation? Are you trusting Christ today? Are you trusting him now? You know, Mark comes to me pastorally and he says, oh, John, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if... Are you trusting Jesus for your salvation now? Yes or no? If not, why not? Let's deal with that. It's too easy to go back into the past and say, well, maybe it wasn't a genuine prayer that you prayed at the beginning. And The question is, what's, what's real now? Um, <clears throat> salvation is not just a crisis experience. It's a process experience. It's the whole package. And so keep trusting Christ today. I know sometimes we do go through dark times. In those dark times, that's when most of all we've got to look at, it is not the holiness I exhibit. It is not the experiences I'm going through. It's the fact that Jesus is holy and perfect and has died and has risen and loves me, and I'm trusting him. 
So when there's those dark times, that's when you just, it's, it's Christ. I'm trusting Christ. I feel miserable. God seems far away from me. My life is a mess. I'm trusting Jesus for my salvation. That is your assurance, not holiness. But pursue holiness, without which no man, no woman can see God. And holiness is a good word. You know, we, should, we should use it more, not just for don't go to movies or drink too much Guinness, but you know, being like Jesus. Let's, let's talk about holiness. Pray for holiness. In a similar vein, so how, how then would you explain uh, security and salvation to friends who perhaps um, acknowledge Christ, they say they're Christians, but yet you see clear evidences in their lives that they're, they're not living up to that? Do you appeal to their outward worked righteousness or do you challenge them about their acceptance of Christ now? How would you deal with someone who says they're okay, they're a Christian, but they're just living in a way contrary to God's word. Yeah. You know, the best way, I think, in dealing with that situation is, is not to speak yourself, but allow God to speak. So, for example, to take a person to 1 John chapter 3, you're having, if you come, register quickly. Don Carson's coming. Registration's almost full. Make sure you get your registration <laughs> for winter. All right. Um, but he's going to talk about 1 John. And 1 John 3, verse 9 and 10 says... No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now that's a problematic text, but I think it can be explained. Basically, the principle is if you're born of God, God plants his holy seed in you and it starts to grow. And so you cannot continue the life that you used to live. It is impossible for a Christian to continue the life they used to live. He, that's, he and I, I didn't say that. John said that. God's seed abides in us. God's seed abides in us. He cannot sin because he's born of God. So there's a fundamental change. Well, how do we see that fundamental change? Verse 10 says, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now we always say, well, is it really that obvious? John says it is obvious. How do you know if you're a Christian or a non-Christian? Well, two things. Are you practicing righteousness or are you loving your brother? If you're not, fill in the blank if you're not you're not a Christian now we don't like to say that because it's not gracious it's not kind it's not well what is kinder to say that to a person and say listen this is what John says John says if you're not practicing righteousness if you're not trying to live a a life that's right with God and if you don't have some sort of love for Christians we're family we Anybody who loves God loves the one born of God. That's also in John. So because we love God, we love, I love you. Most of you I haven't even spoken to directly, but you're God's children. I love you. And you love me, which is even more remarkable. (laughs) So if there isn't that, and if there isn't a desire for righteousness, a person's not a Christian. Is it more loving to say to a friend, listen, I've I've seen here, man, I'm concerned for you. Are you sure you're trusting? Are you sure you're born again? Is that more loving or to say, well, not really sure, but, and off he goes to hell. Or off she goes to hell. I don't think it's love at all to see a person possibly heading off to hell who you claim to love and you don't say anything to them. But use the scriptures. That's why God gave them to us. His word is better than your word. And the nice thing is if they want to argue, you say, well, listen, go and argue with God because he actually said this. And the Holy Spirit takes it and uses it. 
I think there is a lot of, you know, in Zimbabwe there's a lot of nominalism. There's a lot of, yeah, I, I trusted Jesus when I was 14, but I'm living like a reprobate. You're not saved. You're not saved. You've got no biblical basis to, to, to claim to be saved. No biblical basis at all. Tell people that lovingly, gently, kindly, winsomely, but tell them. Going back in the Amos, John, um, the promise in chapter 9, verse 15, that, that Israel would never be uprooted. Um, in history, I thought Israel went on to be uprooted. So does this mean that the promise is false? <laughs> Whoever said that, you're in trouble. You better move. Anybody sitting next to them? <laughs> Leave space. No. Um, I think that my, my own understanding of the Old Testament scriptures as they, as they pertain to Israel and Israel representing the people of God and the relationship between the church and the people of God is this, that I think when Israel, when Israel is used in promises such as this, the fulfillment is not in the resettling, for example, of Israel as a nation back to the promised land physically on this earth as a nation. I think it is a picture of God's people who Acts 15 we know is now wider because the Gentiles have been called in, but God's people being settled and established in the place that God is going to recreate. The new heavens and the new earth, my understanding is, is the new earth is where we're going to live. I preached a sermon <laughs> a few years ago and my opening word was something like, I don't intend to go to heaven. Well, you can imagine what happened. I mean, they were looking for a new pastor. I had one granny come to see me afterwards. She was, she was so cross. But the point I was trying to make was, I intend to go to the new earth. That's my understanding. So the only place where I agree with the Jehovah's Witnesses is I think it's going to be here on this new earth. And the picture in Revelation is the new city, uh, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven to earth. And... And you disagree with me, that's absolutely fine. But, but my understanding is that Israel being settled is us being settled on this new created world which is going to be 10 trillion times nicer than it is now without a single bad thing in it. Absolutely glorious. And that's the, that's the settle that's being spoken of here. And it will happen because God has said it. So even if it hasn't happened yet, it will, it will hold on to it. And think about it. You know, it's going to be trout fishing. What about Frisbee? Yeah? I mean, I've thought about those things. You know, how well will I throw a Frisbee on the, on the new earth? You know, what, what are flowers going to look like? What's it going to be like to stroke a lion? <laughs> I think that's, that's probably childish. Sorry, I should be more grown up. Not at all. Um, two questions here. Is repentance a public thing or a private thing? Yes. And yeah, yes to both. Answered. Could you explain how a nation can both be punished and yet individuals can repent? You made the kind of mm-hmm. that kind of dichotomy, which I find very useful, but also throws up some questions as well. Uh, repentance, public and um, private. The circle of confession is as wide as the circle of offence. I think is a good principle to apply in terms of, of sin and repentance. So if I have sinned against God, 
I ought to confess and repent to God. If I have sinned against Mark, I ought to confess and repent to God and also to Mark. But if I sinned against you, I ought to do this and also that. Which is why in our church, if we have people who have committed some public act of sinfulness and we speak to them and bring them through the process of discipline, part of that is we give them the opportunity to gather when we gather as a church family, as a membership, to come up and say, I've sinned. God has forgiven me. Please forgive me. And we found that remarkably restorative. You know, people come up afterwards and embrace them and hug them and you're back in the family just like you were before. So I think the circle of offense is as wide as the circle of confession or the circle of repentance. I'm not sure if that sufficiently answers the question. Um, The second question was... Can you explain how a nation... Oh, right. uh, ...is that people can be punished, but yet individuals within that nation can repent? My first answer was no, but then I thought, maybe I can. For example, uh, 586, the destruction of Jerusalem. So this is is going to happen in 722, the destruction of Israel. Uh, Judah in the south lasts a little bit longer, but 586, the Babylonians come in. The nation is destroyed... But within that nation, some of the people are taken captive into exile. And the best example, of course, is, for example, Daniel or Esther, Mordecai. Those are all Jews who, as individuals, were saved, even though the nation as a whole was, was conquered. Even there, of course, the nation was, was conquered but not fully destroyed because those people were the germ and the seed of the nation coming back and being reestablished. If you would have asked that question, would that have been a satisfactory answer, Mark, in terms of the individual and the... Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Were you listening to me? I was looking at the further questions. I, I was going to answer, if I'm really honest. <laughs> and moving swiftly on <laughs> to that next question. Um, a lot of stuff on Amos to do with hypocrisy of worship, going through the motions, doing the right things, but yet hearts not being in the right place. And just to kind of bring that into our context, if we think of our corporate song worship, should we not sing in church if we feel distance from God, if we know we've sinned um, in some way? How should we respond when it comes to actually worshiping God together as a people? The first, uh, the first part of that question was, should we sing to God if we feel distant from God? And then it went on to talk, I think, about sin. But I'd like to distinguish those two, because I think when you feel distant from God, that's when you have to sing to God. If it's just distance, you've got to sing. Uh, When I was here for the the pastor's conference last year, I preached on Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is the psalm which begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the way I understand Psalm 22 is that it's a song, not just about the cross, but it's a song from the cross. So it's Jesus singing from the cross. If there was ever a time when Jesus was distant from God, it was the cross. But, but he sings Psalm 22, and I'm convinced he sang the whole psalm. He didn't just sing, you know, you and I, we just quote a single verse, don't we? Not the Jews. The Jews know that a single verse leads to a whole psalm. So, so Jesus would have sung the whole psalm when he is far from God. Psalm 13 um, is a person who is far from God, but they are singing to God. So please... When you're distant from God, sing to God. Can I secondly say, those of you who have any capability of 
of writing songs. Why, why don't we have any modern songs that a Christian who is distant from God can sing? You know, songs that say, Lord, I feel far from you. I sing my prayers and you never seem to hear me. I, I have no joy in my life. Now, maybe you say, well, <laughs> those songs aren't appropriate. But aren't they? 42 of the 150 psalms are psalms of lament. 42 of 150 psalms are psalms of lament. They're psalms of people who are distant from God, who are crying, who are sad, who are frustrated, who are disappointed by God. And yet how few of our songs are songs of lament. So I really would encourage you to give that some thought. And as I say, if you can write, do write some songs. So if you're distant from God, keep singing. If you're distant from God, keep singing. If you're sinning against God, repent. Then sing. Don't just not sing. That's not the right thing to do. If you're sinning, sinning, repent. It's like the Lord's table. When you come to the Lord's table and you're a sinning Christian, I think you mustn't take the Lord's table while you're sinning. But I don't think that means you should sit there like this while it goes by. I think that while it's being parked to mark, passed to Mark, you say, Lord, I'm so sorry, I'm sinning. I got angry with my wife again, and I'm, please forgive me. I need the grace of Christ. And then as the, however you do it, as the bread comes, thank you that you died because I'm such a wretched sinner. But forgiveness is found in Christ. So, so if, you're, if you're distant from God because it's just a distant time, keep singing. If you're distant from God because you're sinning, repent and then sing. Don't do the third alternative, which is keeping on sinning and not singing. It's keeping on sinning and not singing. That's wrong. Repent now. In fact, if anybody wants to come forward. Um, the theme of social injustices, um, it's all throughout Amos. It would be insightful, I think, for us to hear uh, what you think some of the social injustices are that the church in Northern Ireland could be addressing, um, coming kind of looking from the outside in. Um, we can often be blinded to the poverty and the needy around us. Um, if we'd done a survey in this room, I'm sure we would find that we are... Uh, the majority of us are coming from a certain upbringing, a certain background, and that's unfortunately what a lot of our churches look like. And I think this is, for me, this weekend, is one of been a very resounding uh, roar of God, actually, to think of the needy and the injustices. Could you, um, having visited here a few times, think of anything, or as churches, how can we, how can we address those, how can we seek to, to live out God's commands which are ultimately fulfilled in the love for God and for the neighbor? I think I'd have to say I can't. Um, so that'll be the short answer, but let me elaborate on that. One of the things that I've been really profoundly impacted by over the last few years in Zimbabwe is the, is the fact that God does care for the poor. And if you ask the question... Is God prejudiced towards the poor in the Bible? You have to answer that question, yes. You know, we think, we think about God as being unprejudiced, but he is prejudiced towards the poor, biblically. Um, 
You can read James, the rich are told to howl and the poor are told to rejoice. Luke, when he does his rendition of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if you read the Gospel of Luke, and you cannot just spiritualize it, you cannot just spiritualize it, because the Gospel of Luke, Jesus over and over again goes to poor people. Luke over and over again focuses on the downtrodden, the the humble, the struggling. So God is prejudiced towards the poor. And that is because you and I are poor. Praise God he is prejudiced towards the poor. That we being poor might be made rich. He became poor that we through his poverty, we who are poor might be made rich. We are poor. So we need to enact that out in our context. We, we cannot be biblical, spirit-filled, Christ-loving Christians without some deliberate, conscious thought for the poor in our context. Now, that's a strong statement, and uh, as I was starting it, I thought, do I really want to say this? But yes, I do. It's part of the expression of our love for God, is to look for the, the poor. Now, you've got to find them. I don't know. You know I've, my problem is that all of the circles that I've traveled in, in my visits to Northern Ireland, have, these, have been these wonderful circles, and, and I mean that genuinely, very wonderful, just good folk. You know, I've, I've never visited a poor area. I've never gone into the home of, of a family who've got masses of kids and you know, schooling's a problem and drugs is a problem and dad has run off. and I've never been there, but I'm sure they are there. I can only say that in Zimbabwe what we did years ago is we, we deliberately said to the Lord, we're listening. And God started bringing people to us. And from there we've developed a fairly extensive social concern ministry, which is which are programs specifically designed as part of our life as a church. So it's not church, and this is ancillary. It's part of our life as a church to deliberately focus upon the poor in certain ways. I think that if we're willing to say to God, Lord, we're listening, God will show us. God will show you. Lord, we're open. God will lead you. But I can't tell you what that looks like, I'm afraid. I don't know if people here have any thoughts about that, though. You know better than I do. Does anything come to mind? I think a reason why in our society in the UK we're, we're maybe not so good at having our social justice responsibility as a church and maybe given that responsibility to the state in our social care and then right. things. And, that, and that's, that's obviously a sin that is, is there that we have passed over what is our responsibility to the state. And we do need, as you write, to, to pull that back to ourselves and say, as a church, as churches, as individuals, we need to go out and to do more than the state's doing. Yes, the state is doing uh, a job, but we need to do more. Mm-hmm. And I think local PR situation going around that is, is really something that's different, maybe to Zimbabwe. Sure. The state isn't providing that aid. Sure, and, and that's, that's actually very true. The state's um, aid system collapsed. We had people going to the social welfare and then being sent to Central Baptist Church for help by social welfare. Um, the hospital sent people to us for medical help because they couldn't provide it. So in a sense, we're... You know, Zimbabwe's a wonderful place because, you know, if you're looking for needs, you whistle and they line up in front of you. Northern Ireland may be more of a challenge, but they're there. I think one thing is just to be kind to. Do you call what vagrants? You know, people, just being kind, uh, showing respect. I know it's you, know, you don't want to get in conversation and all they want. Yeah, but 
they're human beings made in the image of God, bound by sin, just like you used to be before Jesus stepped in. You know, smile at them, love them, greet them. That, I think, is an act of social justice. Other thoughts, though? The comment is made that maybe the state is doing it so the church really hasn't got the avenues they might have in Zimbabwe. Any other thoughts? Christians Against Poverty. Yeah, right. Um, so maybe something your church could get involved with supporting and just something to be aware of as individuals to sign those people to. Great. Um, <clears throat> Any other thoughts? What um, you said, you talked about things that your church is doing. It's, I know it's a completely different context, but what kinds of things we have three main ministries that um, that operate out of the church with a social justice perspective. So the one is our social concern ministry, where we take care of about 70 families a month with food and medical assistance where they need it, and school fees for children, which is a major issue in our country. And we have a man, we have a pastoral intern who's heading that up and using that as the as a springboard to plant a church within one of the communities where they live. Secondly, we have what we call Rafiki Girls Center, where we bring twice a year 26 disadvantaged girls who haven't been able to go beyond O-levels and somehow haven't passed O-levels. And we teach them basic skills like um, dressmaking, sewing, cooking, manicure, pedicure, uh, basic computer skills, and then um, Bible training, HIV awareness, so we, we sort of pack a general program of useful tools to give them. The idea being that at the end of that period they can go out and they can do something for themselves. We don't do it with a view to make them employable because employ- unemployment is 90-something percent in Zimbabwe, so there are, not, there are no jobs for them to go into, but they can set up little some things for themselves. So we do that, that's Rafiki Girls Center. And then thirdly, we have an organization called Ndasunun Gurwa, which literally means I have been liberated, and is a, a savings and credit association ministry, which is simply, and it's quite popular in developing countries, it's the, it's the precursor to a microfinance institution. So a microfinance institution is basically loaning poor people money, in $50, $100, small little loans, uh, which they wouldn't be able to secure just to help them establish businesses. But this is a step down from that, which is gathering groups of poor people together to save their money together and to teach them the value of saving and to teach them the power of saving together and to give them a sense that they themselves, without any injection of anything, can actually enhance their own situation economically. And we, we run that in, connection with, in conjunction with Hope International, 
So those are the three levels. So we've got the Girls' Centre, we've got the Social Concern Ministry, and then we've got this Savings and Credit Association Ministry as well. Um, the the staffing of all of them except the um, we get a bit of staffing help for Rafiki and Dasun Gurwa from outside but the money for the social concerns food and stuff comes from outside as well so friends outside who are willing to help us yeah. and we found consistently um, 2 Corinthians 9.8 2 Corinthians 8.9 I always forget 9.8 God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency and everything you may have in abundance for every good work has been true, that God will always give you enough so that you can always do good work. A little bit like your earlier comment. He doesn't give you a lot so that you can have a lot, but he gives you a lot so that you can keep giving. And we've seen God's faithfulness over eight years, nine years, where we've wanted to help people, we haven't been able to help people, God has supplied us with what we need to help people. So I'm convinced that you know, God provides the resources for what he calls us to do. And when he stops providing resources, we'll stop doing it because it means it's come to an end. Well, thank you, John. I think uh, we'll bring our time of questions and answers to an end. You can rest easy. I promise you, this is the worst time for me. (laughs) It really is. I think you handled it very well. Next time, if I ever come back, sorry, it's very presumptuous, but can we do the question and answer at the beginning? The question and answer book is pretty much empty up until about 35 <laughs> minutes ago. So, And you were scribbling trying to think, well, I'm sure I can all. I'm sure you would all agree um, with me that John's speaking from Amos has been fantastic and uh, we've been given a faithful exposition of his word. Um, we've been challenged afresh to think of our own lives, to think of the lives of our churches and I just want to encourage you that there is actually more to Amos than what John has spoken today. What? There is. <laughs> and for anyone who would be interested in going home and learning some more and studying in even more depth about Amos, there's two books in the bookstall. Well, there's three books on Amos, but these two, Teaching Amos from Text to Message, I think particularly uh, useful for anyone who would be... Um, teaching and preaching and doing a Bible study through this. And again, the Bible Speaks Today series here on Amos. Have a look at them and check them out. Um, Such a rich book. Um, Not long, but just what God has spoken to us uh, through it this weekend has been uh, amazing. I just want to honour John and say thank you. I want to say thank you on behalf of all of us gathered here for coming. Um, we've been blessed to have you before and we just, we just want to honour you and say thank you for your faithfulness for your, your labour in the Lord um, part of the castle ethos is that we want to promote God's word we want to promote faithful preaching of God's word and you have came here and shown us again the beauty um, and the truth that lies within it and I think it would be appropriate if we just uh, show our appreciation to John and a round of applause